Check this out. The new Trinity Kids shirt. Now, each one of our kids are going to have one of these, and, and I just want to give a shout-out to Jamie. Jamie's going to donate this, these shirts to our kids. But, but if you would like to have one, it's going to cost you 10 bucks. Beautiful shirts. Uh, man, I'm just so excited about the kids' ministry. Not just the kids' ministry, but check this out. TFC Youth. Caleb's getting ready to kick the youth off and get it going again. And we're just excited about all that God's doing around here. Uh, I want to announce today that if anyone is wanting to help with the Trinity Kids Ministry and you didn't make it to the last organizational meeting, uh, please see Melissa. Uh, She'll find something for you to do. And uh, also... Uh, if you missed, like, like I said, if you missed the meeting and you just want a shirt, let us know. We'll pass it on to Jamie, and she'll have a shirt for you. We, if, if you'd like to have a large shirt, but you, fix it, you fit in a double X, we can't help you. Let me say that again. If you'd like a large shirt, but you, fit, you, can't, you wear a double X normally, you're out of luck. We, don't, we can't work miracles like that. But... Hey, everybody get a shirt. They look cool. I'm getting one, and uh, so I'm excited about that, and uh, you'll want one. Also, that meeting to, to organize everything that's been planned, uh, man, September 5th is getting here quick, a week from Wednesday, but this Wednesday, we're going to have our final organizational meeting with everybody that's involved to, to finalize the plans for opening night. Opening night is going to be huge, as Dana shared with us a while ago. It's, it's an open house, and, uh, and we're going to show them off all the painting that's taken place, all the stuff that Melissa and others have prepared to, to make that a special night for our kids. And we're going to be serving taco salad. Now, you can't go wrong with taco salad. And so we want all of you to come to greet those kids and their parents as they're touring our facility and and seeing what all we're doing for the kids. There will be time of worship. And I just want our parents to know what we're doing for their kids, and it's going to be a great time. So I want you to be here, and I want you to be here three weeks from today. We start revival with Pastor Philip Corbett. And you are going to be blessed by this man and his ministry. We've been counting this down since about February. And uh, I'm just so excited that it's almost here. Uh, Pastor Corbett has pastored the same church in uh, Corrigan, Texas. I lose track of that name every time. He's pastored the same church. He founded that church 34 years ago. Uh, He's pastored there for 34 years. And his church graciously allows him to go out... Uh, several Sundays uh, whenever is needed to, to conduct revival meetings. And, and uh, Philip and I have become very good friends, and, and he's going to come and have revival. We're going to have revival. So tell all your friends. It's going to be Sunday morning. We do have our annual picnic that evening on Sunday evening, the 16th, and then the 17th, the 18th, and the 19th. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. We'll be having revival services, and 
the service on Wednesday evening is going to have a special emphasis on healing the sick. So you'll want to be here for that. It's going to be a great time. And be praying. I, I encourage the board this week, uh, fasting and praying between now and the revival, that God will just move in unprecedented fashion. How many of you would like to see God do something so special it just knock you off your feet? I'd like to see that. And God's still able to do that. But more than anything else, I want to see him revive us to the point where we are so full of Jesus, we just can't contain it. And everybody we come in contact with in the community wants to know what's up. Amen? <laughs> and we can tell them. So I'm looking forward to it. Be praying about it. Today we're starting a new sermon series. And I'm excited about that. A.W. Tozer the great pastor, biblical theologian, once gave this quote, and I want to share it with you this morning. He said, Christian churches have come to that dangerous time predicted long ago. It's a time when churches pat one another on the back, congratulate themselves, and join in glad refrain of how wonderful we are. He goes on to say, we are rich and increased with goods, and we have need of nothing. Wow. Well, it certainly is true that there's hardly anything missing from churches these days. But I, I happen to believe that the most important thing that still is missing in all too many settings is the genuine and sacred Offering of ourselves to the Lord in worship. Um, my own loyalties, my own responsibilities are and always will be with the strong evangelization, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring churches. And, you know, even here at TFC, we make the attempt to, to surge forward and reach out to and, and, and touch our community with the good news of Jesus and how He's changed our lives. Um, there are great churches being built all around the world. Some of them we even call mega churches because they have so many that are, that are attending. Uh, but, you know, even here at, at Trinity Faith, we set high standards because we want to be known as a church that reaches and embraces area families. That's our mission statement, and I love it. Reaching and embracing area families. And... You know, we just talked about it. We're, we're praying for an upcoming revival. Not the noun, not the event. We are praying for the verb to take place. Revival within us. So that, that we can become refreshed and renewed with the Spirit of God and uh, see God do some amazing things in our midst. Having said all of that, here's a question, and it's not just a rhetorical question. What has happened to worship? Uh, I want you to turn with me to John chapter number 4 in your Bibles or on your Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter number 4, and it's a familiar story. Jesus has encountered a woman from a little village called Samaria. And it's not a happenstance occurrence when Jesus encounters this woman. He has gone out of his way on, he, on his way to Jerusalem, and he takes a very abrupt turn and takes the long way. 
a way that goes through Samaria, but he's done that for a purpose. He's not done that just so the disciples can see different sights than what they've become accustomed to. He, he wasn't taking it because it was the scenic route. He was taking it because he knew that he was going to encounter this woman from this little village in Samaria. And we read in John chapter number 4, beginning with verse number 19, these words, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Here's what I want you to notice. Jesus replied, He said, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Heavenly Father, You are worthy of our worship and our adoration. And Lord Jesus, I'm praying that during the course of this sermon series that we will not only see ourselves and some of the things that you have laid upon my heart to share with this congregation concerning worship, but that we will gain an entirely new appreciation for the very reason for which you created us, and that is to be worshipers. Lord, we know that you are worthy of our worship, but there are times in each of our lives, Lord, when our lives don't reflect who we worship. And so, Jesus, my prayer is that you will draw attention to that fact if it is the case in each of our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Could it be that Jesus' indictment, and it is an indictment, that he placed upon this Samaritan woman, and not just this Samaritan woman, but upon her entire race of people there in, in chapter 4, verse number 22, he said to her, he said, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. I, I wonder if, if Jesus' indictment upon us could be the same as that indictment upon that Samaritan woman. You worship what you do not know. I want you to listen very closely because a lot that I'm going to say will leave room for misunderstanding if you don't listen closely, okay? Um, it's a sad statement that people can talk a lot about worship, that people can perform a lot of acts of worship, that people can go through the routine of worship and yet not know the one that they're worshiping. You say, how is that possible? Well, equally concerning is that people can do all of those things and still not know how to worship. Um, the Samaritans, let's, let's just give you a little context from which Jesus made that indictment of that Samaritan woman. The Samaritan people claimed to believe in the same God as did the Jewish people. 
But the Samaritans denied all of the Old Testament except for the first five books of the law. Now, we know that Moses was the author of those first five books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I almost started singing the song because that's the way I learned it, but we'll just stop at that. That's all the Samaritans believed in was the books of the law. Now, how many of you can guess what happened as a result of only believing in the first five books of the law? They lived according to legalism. In other words, what you should do, this is the way that you do it, this is where you do it, this is how you do it, and don't do any of this other stuff because then you'll be transgressing the law. Um, They also, the Samaritan people also went against biblical authority by building a temple themselves and in the temple that they built for themselves to worship, they offered sacrifices in public worship, and even worse, they incorporated their worship into the worship of idols. They worship, their worship was this, this hodgepodge of, of different beliefs and, and, and traditions and practices. And I hope our worship isn't like that. I, I hope our worship is, is truly biblical worship. But anyway, that gives you an idea of of, of the, the religious background of not only this Samaritan woman, but of her people. And so when Jesus addresses this matter of worship with her, he says to her, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. But he said, on the other hand, we worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, I'm guessing that neither she understood what he meant, nor did his disciples understand what he meant. When he said that. But I, looking back now, we can understand what he meant. We know that Jesus came through God's chosen people, the Jews. And we know that there is salvation found in no other place other than through Jesus of Nazareth. So when Jesus says, we worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. In other words, it's the Jewish people who have given you the opportunity through, through bringing us Jesus to receive salvation. The opportunity to be saved. And this morning as we begin this new sermon series that I've entitled Passionate Worship, I, I want to share with you why we're doing this series. First of all, I have, have made it a rule. You know, I can make rules for myself because I don't have to ask anybody else. So, I made this rule for myself that at least once a year, I'm going to do a sermon series on worship. I believe it's that important. That's, as you heard me say, hopefully in my prayer a while ago, God created us to be instruments of worship. And that doesn't mean that you, you walk around with your eyes closed and necessarily your hands in the air and... And and singing kumbaya all the time. It means that every aspect of your life is to be lived in worship. Whether at work or at school, your life should testify to the one whom you worship. So that's what this is all about. Uh, It's important that we talk about worship because that's where we find satisfaction for our needs. Now, 
Here's what I want to do. Here's how I'm going to start off part one. I want you to again go in your Bibles back to the Old Testament book of Exodus chapter number 20. You'll also find it on your Bible app. Exodus chapter number 20 is a momentous chapter in the Word of God. Because it's in Exodus 20 that God gives to Moses, again the author of those first five books, what we have come to know as the Ten Suggestions. I'm just testing you to see if you were listening. He gives to us the Ten Commandments. And today I want to deal with just the first two, found in verses 1 through 6. Then God spoke all these words, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Can I just stop right there and say, I I wish that the Holy Spirit would have inspired Moses to say, what part of that do you not understand? (laughs) Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or in the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." First of all, let me break those six verses down a little bit for you. We have to understand that there is a relationship that is a requirement for worship. Uh, Quick test. Who do you suppose that relationship's with? You did good. You know, when you ask a question in church, 67% of the time the answer is Jesus or God. So you did good. You have to have a relationship with God in order to be a true worshiper. Any worship that doesn't recognize God's divinity, according to what we just read in Exodus, is improper worship. The worshiper must have a proper relationship with the Lord God in order to be able to truly worship Him. We worship Him not so much for what we get out of it, We worship him because of who he is. Who he is is worthy of our praise and our adoration. Now having said that, let me just add this. Much of today's worship seems to draw attention to self. Many of today's, quote, worship services are nothing more than frolicking frenzies that glorify self rather than glorifying God. Uh, what, does, what does that look like in practical terms in those types of worship services? Well, I'm going to tell you. When more attention is given to those leading the worship than the one who is supposed to be the focus of our worship, it is selfish worship. Did you catch that? 
It's not about who's doing the worship. I I saw an interesting post on Facebook this week. Somebody asked Francis Chan, or told Francis Chan, they said, we didn't like the worship this morning. And Francis Chan came up with a great response. He said, that's okay, you weren't the one being worshipped. Hey, that'll preach now. That'll preach. But it doesn't stop there. When more attention is being paid to the style or to the performance of the song rather than the focus on who the song is about, it becomes selfish worship. How can that happen? Well, I believe much of it's because of the lack of a right relationship. A wrong understanding of who God is and what he expects of us. If you look at verse 2 of Exodus chapter number 20, God reminds the Jewish people of his power to deliver. What does he say to them? I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. This is what I've done for you. He is the one who, who, who has, has delivered them from the oppression that they were in. And as worshipers today, we have been delivered to an even greater degree than what they were. I hope you have figured it out by now how you have been delivered to an even greater degree. You've been delivered from the power of sin. Because about 37 books later, Jesus died. And he became that once and for all sacrifice. And delivered all who would believe in him and in his saving work from the power of sin. We've been delivered from the power of sin, bondage to sin, whatever you want to call it. We've been delivered from the curse of death. I, I keep taking these rabbit trails, but I'll just chalk it up to being the Holy Spirit telling me to do it. I find it amazing. I find it nothing short of amazing. That the number one fear among Christian people is death. Closely followed by public speaking, but the first is <laughs> the first is death. I gotta tell you, friends, I'm not looking forward to it, but I ain't running from it either. First of all, it wouldn't matter if I did. Second of all, when I take the last breath down here. The next one I take is going to be in heaven with Jesus. Death holds no curse for me, friends, because I belong to him. And he has gone to prepare a place for me. And if he goes to prepare a place for me, he's going to come again and receive me unto myself. And whether that be in the clouds of glory or by way of the grave, it doesn't matter to me. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad I took that rabbit trail? The grave isn't final. The I am of the Old Testament who delivered the children of bondage out of Egyptian, delivered the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage is the same I am of the New Testament who delivered us through his sacrificial death from the, to the promise of new life. Verse 5. A verse that I've had young people say, 
Well, hey, I thought that jealousy was a sin. Verse 5 tells us that God is jealous of our worship. Can I just tell you God has a right to be jealous of our worship? He alone loves us completely. Now, who else can you say that about? Who else can you say loves you completely like Jesus does? No one. He loves you completely and He's right in being jealous for us because of his perfect knowledge. You know what that knowledge is? This will knock you off your chair. He alone knows what's best for us. He alone knows what's wrong for us. He alone knows what is harmful to us. And he alone, therefore, is worthy of our worship and has every right to be jealous of our worship. I don't even know what's best for myself. God does. And and thankfully, He does because I have this tendency from time to time, not that anybody else here ever did this, but to be my own worst enemy. That's why I have to submit myself to God. Uh, Jacob said it again. We have to humble ourselves before God. Say, God, all of my supposed knowledge, all of my experience, it ain't going to cut it. I'm dependent upon you, God. So I lay all of that stuff down. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he was educated in the finest schools of Judaism, destined for the top seat. I mean, he was, he was a true blue Jew if there ever was one. When he came to Jesus Christ, you know what he said? All of that stuff, all of that stuff is dung. It doesn't matter anymore. All that matters is my dependence upon him. He has a right to be jealous of our worship. God of the heavens, God of all creation. Think about this. He loves you. And he loves me completely. He knows what's best. He knows what's worst. He knows what's harmful. I think he's worthy of our worship. But let me move on. There has to be also a remembrance that impassions our worship that will cause us to worship God with passion from the depths of our heart. What is that remembrance that we must remember? What he has given to us and what he has done for us. John the Revelator described it in Revelation chapter number 4 verse 9. He says, whenever the living creatures... Give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne, worship the one who lives forever and ever, cast their crowns before the throne, and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and because of your will they exist and were created. There was a missionary returning from Trinidad and Tobago who told of leading a worship service in a, a leper colony. Now, that's kind of a foreign concept to those of us here in America. 
But it would be the equivalent of leading a worship service in a modern-day village of AIDS victims. It would be even worse because now they have things that can remedy that horrible disease of AIDS. But this missionary came home from Trinidad and Tobago after having been in a worship service in a leper colony. He took requests for songs to be sung. And in the back of the crowd, there was a lady who raised her hand. This poor lady was missing what we would call a mouth. Leprosy had taken the nose from her face. As a matter of fact, her leprosy had taken all of the fingers from the hand that she requested, made raised to request her song. You know what song she requested? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. You know, folks, if we're not entering into his presence in a spirit of worship, if we're not bowing our hearts before him, if we're not singing praises to his name, could it be that we've forgotten all that he's done for us? I mean, my goodness, if a, if a leprous woman missing the extremities of her body can say, thank you, Lord, for what you've done. I think most of us here today have something to be thankful for. We need to remember that, all that he's done for us. Could it be that we become calloused in our hearts and maybe the thing that we need to do in order to really worship is first of all repent of the callousness or the hardness of our hearts, repent of our coldness, repent of our deadness. Let me tell you something, friends. When we come together to worship, whether it's in singing worship, ministry of the word, rod, giving of the offering is an act of worship. When we come together, there ought to be an excitedness about us. Because we are in the presence of Jesus. We are in the presence of the creator of the universe. If a dignitary walked into this room this morning, whether or not we agreed with his politics, we would stand and welcome him because of the office that he holds. Let me tell you what, friends. There's no earthly office like the one that Jesus holds. He's sitting at the throne, the right hand of God the Father. So when we come together, we need to honor him for who he is. And not just his office, but for everything that he's done for us. We must also have to realize that there are restrictions instituted in true worship. And I know that there are some who would like to take all the religions and lump them together and all the deities, the other gods of the world, and lump them together and say, oh, they're all the same. They all lead down the same path. They all lead to heaven. Well, what's wrong with that desire is that it's not true. In verse number 2 of Exodus 20, notice that tiny word. It's spelled T. H 
E. It says, you have it up there? I am the Lord, your God. Implying he's the only one. There is no other name by which man must be saved but at the name of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. So lumping all those other things together, thinking that they lead down the same path, it's just wrong. That word the makes all the difference in the world. He is the one and only God. He is the only one worthy of our worship. And in those restrictions, there is a warning against being influenced by those other things. The Egyptians, as well as other neighboring countries of that day, they all worshiped these multiple deities or multiple gods. Uh, and, And God is warning, don't take up their false gods. Don't worship them. And neither are we to fashion any images and make them a God or even to have them represent a God. This includes the carvings of things that have been dedicated to gods. Now, let me talk about that in practical terms because it might surprise you what I'm referring to. In practical terms, what it's referring to is what the Apostle Paul calls in the New Testament spiritual adultery. Let me describe that for you. It's when we attach ourselves, so to speak, to gods that are not our true God or Heavenly Father. We commit spiritual adultery. Again, in practical terms. If too much emphasis and attention is placed upon the singing, the singing becomes the object of our worship. If too much emphasis or attention is placed upon the preacher or his or her preaching. It then becomes the object of our worship. I've known people who placed too much emphasis and attention on the church building that they attended or on the particular denomination that they were a part of. And in so doing, those things became more an object of their worship than the one and only true God. I could go on and on with the gods that people worship today, but I hope you get the point I'm trying to make. We attach ourselves to gods that are not God himself. There are also repercussions involved in worship. Not percussion, Jacob, like the drums. Repercussions. I just wanted to explain that to you. God not only warns his children against the worship of these gods, but he then adds what the repercussions or the consequences will be if they fall into such practices. One of the worst impacts that these these practices have is the impact that they have upon our children and our children's children, even to the fourth generation. Now, that's not my word. That's what he said there. But let me just break that down a little bit to you. 
I mentioned a moment ago that I've known people who worship their church or, or their denomination more than they worship God himself. I truly believe, I truly believe that many of the young people whom I grew up with have fallen away from God for this very reason. Their parents or their grandparents placed more emphasis and attention on adhering to the belief systems of certain churches or belief systems of, or, or doctrines of denominations. And the resulting consequence is God's punishment for their spiritual adultery. They need to repent of it. They need to repent of it because if they don't, the punishment will extend not just to them, but to their children and to their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. I can vouch for the fact that some of the ways in which we have worshipped, some of the things that we have worshipped, have been passed on to some of the kids that I grew up with. And for that very reason, too many of them, like him, have no use for God, for his church, or for God's people. In the strongest of terms, God is telling us here in Exodus chapter number 20 that those who worship false gods, idols, images, etc. are described, look how he says it, as those who hate me. He can't get much stronger than that. On the bright side, how many of you are glad we're here for the bright side? We have to also understand that there are plenty of rewards that come with worship. Why should we worship? Because it's right. Anybody here concerning, concerned with doing what's right? I hope so. Worship is right. We are obeying God when we worship. It's pleasing to Him. The Bible says He delights in the praise of His people. I want God to delight in me. I want to delight myself in him, but I want him to be delighted with me, faulty as I am. Worship prepares us. It causes us to become more like the one we worship. And I close with a story. Nathaniel Hawthorne, a great poet and author, tells a wonderful imaginative short story that illustrates the necessity of having the right focus when it comes to worship. The tale centers around a man whose name is Ernest who grew up in a village renowned for a natural wonder that rested just outside its boundaries. It seems that nature had majestically carved uh, in the side of a mountain the features of a human countenance that was so realistic that from a distance, that great stone face, as it was known to be called, seemed positively alive. Now, all of the features of that face carved into that mountain were magnificent, and the expression on the face was grand, and, and it was sweet, and Ernest, just like every other child in that village, had been told of an ancient prophecy. Now keep in mind, this is fictional. But they'd been told of an ancient prophecy that at some future day, a child would be born in that vicinity who was destined to become the greatest public figure of his time and whose countenance, when he became a man, would bear an exact resemblance 
to the great stone image carved in the side of the mountain. So as Ernest grew older, his only hope was, I hope that I will live to see the man whose face is carved in the side of the mountain. So he grew older and he never forgot that prophecy that his mother had taught him as a child. It was always on his mind. And as he grew into manhood, Ernest would allow that great stone face to become his teacher, meditating upon the countenance of that face, looking to it for comfort, reading stories about it, speaking of it to those who would hear. Well, years passed, and many came into the village claiming to be that promised one whose image was carved into the mountain. But each time, Ernest would go out to meet those who were the pretenders, and he would come away disappointed and even sometimes almost despondent. For although these imposters claimed the honor, Ernest somehow knew better. It wasn't the person. And as a result of his devotion to the face that was carved into the mountain, he'd become somewhat of an expert on that face. So he knew what to look for in the personage of the one who was born to emulate that face carved into the side of the mountain. Surely, Ernest of all people would know the one if and when he came. After each disappointment, Ernest would then return to the mountain, look into the face that nature had carved into it, and ask the question, how long before you send the one? Well, the granite features somehow seemed to reassure him, don't worry about it, Ernest. The man will come. Years went by. Ernest had become an old man. His hair was now gray, and the movement of his body was slow. The one great sadness of his life was that he had never seen the prophet that he had been told by his mother that one day would come. One day, a poet famous for his poem celebrating the great stone face came to visit Ernest. They enjoyed one another's company, and they, and they spoke, but they spoke sadly before, because they both longed to see the fleshly face of that which had been carved into the mountain. The two talked long for days. And as the day drew to a close for the time of the man's visit to end, it came time for Ernest's daily discourse on the great stone face. Each evening he had developed a habit of going to the, to the city square and the inhabitants of the neighboring village would ascend in the open air to hear his stirring oration about what this great stone face represented. This poet, as he listened to Ernest, gradually grew teary-eyed. Because the being and the character of Ernest were a nobler strain of poetry than he had ever written. The face of Ernest some suddenly became a grandeur of expression. So filled with benevolence and with the great stone face looming behind Ernest's own face, the poet suddenly realized what should have been obvious to him all along. He noticed that Ernest had a mild sweet countenance that looked like the stone face that had been carved into the mountain. Moved by an irresistible impulse, the poet threw his arms into the air and began to shout to anyone who would hear, Behold, Ernest himself 
is the likeness of the great stone face. And with that, all the people sitting about looked at Ernest and noticed that what the poet had said was true. The prophecy had been fulfilled. Ernest had become like his ideal. Cool story. Pure fiction. But there's a lot of truth in it. And the truth is this. When we consistently look for and look into the face of Jesus in our worship, we become more and more like the one whom we worship. Worship team, would you come, please? Jesus, my heart's desire is to become more like you day by day, week by week. And Lord, all of my efforts, the education, the, the talents, the abilities that you've given, they're not nearly enough to make me like you. But worshiping you will. When I lay all of those things at your feet, when I count all of them as Paul did as being nothing more than, than dung, and just make you the focus of my worship. Over a period of time, my life will begin to resemble yours. And that's not only my desire, but it's my prayer for each person in this room this morning. I pray that our worship, Lord, in every aspect would point to you. I pray that our worship would let every person that we come in contact with know what we believe and in whom we believe. I pray that worship would let people that we come in contact know who is worthy to be pointed to. That you are the only one worthy of our praise and our adoration. So, Lord Jesus, in this moment, as your Holy Spirit is here and we are in his presence, make yourself known to us, Jesus. Help us to shut out the person sitting on either side of us. Help us to shut out our plans for the afternoon. Help us to shut out everything but you, Jesus. And just focus on you. Would you stand with me, please? The worship team is playing a song that I asked them to play. The words of it are so powerful. I want us to sing it together. And again, don't focus on whether you like the tune or not. Don't focus upon whether it's officially a hymn and is in a hymn book somewhere or whether it's contemporary. <laughs> None of those things matter. Focus of the one whose presence we are in. In the presence of joy 
Listen to this part. Troubles vanish and hearts are mended in the presence of the King. Anyone here this morning come to this service with any trouble in your life? Anyone in this room come this morning with a heart that's breaking for one reason or the other? In the presence of Jehovah, troubles vanish. Hearts are mended. Let's sing it again. In the presence of Jehovah, God Almighty, Prince of Peace. You have troubles, your heart's breaking. Come to these altars this morning. Vanish and hearts are mended. These altars are open. I'd love to pray with you this morning. In the presence of the King Jesus, we need your presence. Oh God, we need your healing virtue to flow through Gary's body. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Things of earth will grow strangely dim. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Not that anyone else here would ever do this, but there are times when I worry 
come on, help me out here. Don't leave me out here on this island by myself. I worry from time to time. Paul told us in the book of Philippians, don't worry about anything but pray about everything. Don't worry about anything but pray about everything. Now, how many of you would agree that's easier said than done? Come on now, we're just being honest with one another. But for example, if I've been told that I don't have long to live, or if I've been told that I'm going to be losing my job this week and my source of providing for my family is going to be taken from me, Those are earthly things. And the things of earth will grow dim when your focus is on the face of Jesus. And not only that, but you'll become more and more like Him. That's what worship is about. Heavenly Father, for every need, for every situation that you're aware of in this room and the families that are connected with those who are in this room this morning. We give it to you, Jesus. All of our troubles, all of our anxieties, all of our worries can fade in light of your glory and your grace. And Lord, as we leave this place this morning, many of us are going to go back and enjoy a, a wonderful lunch prepared by a bunch of wonderful ladies. And I pray your blessing upon that food that we partake of. I pray that our fellowship with one another would honor you. I pray, dear Lord, that as we eventually this afternoon sometime leave this building and go about our ordinary lives, the everyday life that we live, that people would see that we're beginning to look a lot more like you, Jesus. The way that we act in our character, in our integrity, may it glorify you, Jesus. We'll thank you for it. Amen.